The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. And girls for being a part of that. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to open up with me to, to the book of First uh, Samuel. Um, when I first got here 10 years ago, I used to tell you guys uh, Friday stories, just like almost every week I tell you. So I'm going to, I'm going to relive a Friday story. So this week... This past Thursday, my youngest son and I, we flew out to Colorado. He's doing a campus visit for a school that he's interested in going to um, as a, um, uh, when, when he graduates high school here at the end of next, he's in his junior year, so the end of his senior year. Um, how many of you have been to Colorado? Been to Colorado? A few of you have. A few of, okay. Um, you know, that altitude stuff, that's no joke. So... We were in Colorado Springs, which is about 6,000 feet above sea level, so a little over a mile um, above sea level. And so I'm training for it. Greg and I are training. I think some other people are training for like a half marathon. Last Saturday, I ran 13 miles, you know, so I'm in decent shape to be able to run 13 miles. I'm walking up the steps in Colorado Springs going, <sighs> it's, I mean, that altitude stuff is no joke. But at any rate... Um, while we were there, we went even higher. We went up to, to the top of P- Pikes Peak, which is about 14,000 feet high. And if you've ever been there, there's a road that you can drive going up there. And on the way up there, they have these um, signs like, like a bobcat, and then they have a sign of, um, of a coyote or whatever. And, and in my mind, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking what they're trying to show you is that if you don't fall off the cliff and die driving up there, there are any number of carnivores that could kill you while you're there, is what I'm thinking. Um, but anyways, it was a beautiful, beautiful time to be there. If you ever get a chance to go out there, it's, it's well, worth, well worth the time. Uh, we, we, uh, the Lord, Lord allowed us to have wonderful weather while we were there. So that's my little Friday story for you. Now to the Word of God. Um, I've titled today's message, A Man After God's Own Heart. A man after God's own heart. I don't know about you, I've, I've heard that phrase so much. Frankly, and I've read through the Bible dozens of times, I thought, I just in my mind, I thought it, it appeared everywhere in the Bible. Like this, this idea, a man after God's own heart. And of course, referring to King David being a man after God's own heart. Um, and then as I was studying this week, I realized it's in our passage today in First in Samuel chapter 13. It's, it's there, and it's one other place in, in the book of Acts where we find this phrase, a man after God's own heart. Um, but that, nevertheless, that's the title for today's message. I wonder if you've ever thought about the difference between an individual's beliefs as opposed to that same individual's convictions. So beliefs and convictions. Um, they're, they're closely related to one another, but they are not the same. Beliefs and convictions are not the same. A belief is something that an individual considers to be correct or true. So, for example, one may believe in fate or destiny, while another person may believe that intelligent life exists in other places in our universe. Now, these things may be true. They may not be true. 
But the person, nevertheless, they, they, he believes them to be true. And so when we use belief in this sense, we're, we're, we're using belief in the sense of having a strong opinion about something. Which is not to say, by the way, that, that a belief is simply someone's opinion. I'm, I'm just using that as an illustration of the relative strength of these words, belief and conviction. Because a conviction, on the other hand, is something that an individual is convinced about. It, it's much more than a strong opinion. A conviction will lead a person to alter his lifestyle. A conviction will lead a person to accept, for example, negative consequences because changing one's mind would interfere with their conviction so they wouldn't change their mind. In fact, generally speaking, there is no changing of one's mind when it comes to convictions. Or at least it takes overwhelming evidence that would cause somebody to change their conviction. So, for example, let, let's say an individual, a man, has a personal close encounter with, with something that he thinks is intelligent life from another part of the universe. You can imagine that, that for that individual, he would have a conviction that life does exist in other places. And it would be very hard, it would be very hard to convince him otherwise. One of my deeply held personal convictions is that all human life is sacred. Every human life is sacred. And related to that point, I believe that life begins at the moment of fertilization. I believe that with all of my being, I'm convinced of that. And I'm so convinced of that that I've, I've altered the way I live my life. I've made significant life choice decisions based on that personal conviction. It's not something I take lightly. Over the past several months, I've had numerous conversations with several different church members about various COVID vaccinations, for example. Um, some of you have very strong convictions about the vaccine, while others of you, I would say, are more in the kind of belief realm about that. Some of you, for example, believe it's like it's prudent for maybe most people to get the shot, but you wouldn't dream of like forcing somebody to get the shot. Others are firmly in the conviction realm, and they're so convicted against getting the shot, for example, that they would be willing to lose. I've had just this past week, I had this conversation with a church member. They said, I'm going to lose my job, but that's okay. I'm going to lose a job. I'm not going to get the shot. That is the definition of a conviction. That's what it is to have a conviction. It's to say, I don't care if negative consequences come my way. I'm not, I cannot, and I will not do that. But friends, it's often in the time of crisis when our convictions become clearer. After all, it's, it's relatively easy to say that we would or we wouldn't do something when we're only speaking hypothetically about it, right? I mean, that's one thing, but when our, you know, when our job really isn't in jeopardy, it's easy to, you know, grandstand and say, I would sooner lose my job than I would do that. And it's one thing to do it that way, but it's another thing when that's actually on the line. In church history, there's a man named Martin Luther. You've heard me refer to him before. Um, he delivered perhaps one of the most famous speeches declaring his own personal conviction. Here, here's part of what he said in that speech in April of 1521. So 500 years ago this year, he said, and I quote, Unless I'm convinced by Scripture or plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. 
In saying those words, Luther stood to lose a lot more than his job. He stood to lose his head. He was on trial for his life. He was facing execution if he didn't recant his teachings. But he stood by his convictions. I mention all that because today we're going to see a time in the history of God's people when a certain leader didn't stand by his convictions or he didn't stand by what should have been his convictions. He chose the way of pragmatism and he and the kingdom suffered for it. And so let's hear from the word of the Lord. If you're in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, say amen. All right, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's 23 verses. Um, Follow along as I read, please. Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had declared, excuse me, Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul in Gil- at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were starting to, uh, were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel, excuse me, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over His people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And when they went from, excuse me, they went up from, from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present 
with them stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shaul. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Let the Hebrews make for themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening axes and and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass at Michmash. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I thank you again for your word. And I pray now that you would use this time, this time we have remaining, use it, Father, to your honor and glory that we might be changed as Your Spirit accompanies Your Word being proclaimed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have five points I'm going to make this morning. They're all going to be relatively brief because we want to get to the baptism. And, um, and so there's going to be a, there, you're going to have some unanswered questions when you leave today, and that's okay. Um, hopefully that will drive you into some further study of the Word. If you want to talk to me later about some of those unanswered questions, I'd be happy to talk, talk with you about that. But my central idea for today's message is crisis brings clarity to our convictions. Crisis brings clarity to our convictions. And again, at five, five points. First, we see a time of crisis. A time of crisis. This will be in verses 1 through 7. The Philistines were a regular nemesis for the people of God during this period of history. And the Philistines, in most every respect, were technologically superior to the Israelites. Our text today begins by telling us something of the size of Israel's fighting force. We're we're told that there were 3,000 men in total. 2,000 of those were with King Saul. 1,000 were with Saul's son, Jonathan. And we're told in verse 3 that Jonathan scores an important victory over the garrison of the Philistines in Geba. But then in verse 4, the text tells us that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And we might be wondering, you know, what's up with that? Was it Jonathan or was it Saul who defeated the Philistines? And the answer to that is yes. It it was Jonathan who had defeated. It was Jonathan who, if you will, was there in the flesh commanding the armies who defeated them. But it was Saul as the king who gets credit for that. Right now, you might think that's unfair, but it's not uncommon. It's it's same thing that we would do today. If you're if you're studying World War II history, for example, uh, you might read that Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he defeated the Germans. Well, of course, Roosevelt didn't fire a single shot, but since he was the president at the time, it would be appropriate to say that he was the one who defeated the Germans. So in our text today, Saul defeated the Philistines, even though it was Jonathan who was doing the work. But here's the point: this defeat. This skirmish, this battle where there's a defeat causes Israel to become a stench to the Philistines. In other words, the Philistines, they're not not happy 
about this defeat. And so they put together, if you will, a smallish fighting force of their own. Uh, 30,000 chariots. I know, I know some of your translations will have 3,000 chariots there, but the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew text from, from 1 Samuel actually says 30,000 chariots. Either way, whether it's just 3,000 or 30,000, that's a lot of chariots. In addition to the chariots, there's 6,000 horsemen. And in addition to the chariots and the horsemen, there are troops, the text says, like the sand on the seashore. Now, do you remember how many soldiers Israel had? How many? Oh, there you go. Somebody's paying attention. We had 3,000. There were 3,000. So, in other words, the Israelites, they, their army is dwarfed by the Philistines. And so the Israelites do what any one of us would have done in a situation like that. They hide in caves. <laughs> they hide in holes. They hide behind rocks. They hide in tombs. They hide in cisterns. The people at this point are in full crisis mode. And so this leads Saul to a moment of decision, which is point number two. Oh, I hate it when... This is why I don't like preaching with an iPad. Hit the wrong button and something happens right there. All right. Our printer is down this week. This is just a happy coincidence. Our printer is down this week. So I said, well, I guess I'll preach from my iPad uh, today. Point number two, a moment of decision. Saul waits for Samuel for seven days. Now, there's some debate, by the way, um, about whether this seven-day waiting period is the exact same seven-day waiting period that we saw back in chapter 10. Um, personally, I think it's unlikely that it's the same seven-day. If you're new with us today, we're, we're walking our way through First Samuel, so we've already covered everything that's come before this. Um, I think it's unlikely that it's the same. Too much time, calendar time, has happened between chapters 10 and 13. I think it's more likely that the seven-day period is somewhat of a standard waiting period that Saul would give, uh, or that Samuel would give to Saul. So this is what Saul did back in chapter 10. In other words, this is probably what he did on other occasions. This is what he's doing right now. He's waiting. He's giving him that, that week's waiting period. But on this particular occasion, Saul is facing an overwhelming military force. And we're told that his already small military force is bleeding numbers day by day. So Saul, he's facing a moment of decision. He feels like, if, if I don't act right now, then the Israelites, we're not going to have any hope of defeating the Philistines. And so he takes matters into his own hands. He decides, I'm, he's, I'm going to go ahead with a burnt offering without Samuel's help, with, without Samuel's presence. He tells the servants, you know, bring the burnt offering, bring the peace offering, and he proceeds to offer the burnt offering. Now picture this in your mind. You just made a, offered a burnt offering. The smell of the burnt offering, it's still in the air. And guess who shows up? Samuel. And so Saul goes out to meet Samuel, to meet and greet him, welcome him. Now you might be wondering, so what's the big deal? Why, why was it important for Saul to wait on Samuel? Why, why is that important? Beloved, the answer is rather simple. Samuel is a prophet of God. So whenever Samuel spoke, he was speaking on behalf of God. So therefore, Samuel's words to Saul are God's words to Saul. To, to disobey Samuel is to disobey God. To, to use an illustration that we might understand, you know, so we believe that the Bible, we believe that this book is God's book. This is His Word. 
God inspired certain individuals to write down His Word. We believe that since God is perfect, since God is without error, we believe that the Bible as God's Word is without error. It's without mistake in it. And so when we disregard, when we see, we read it and say, oh yeah, but I'm not going to do that. We're sinning. We're falling short of God's standard for our lives. But when Saul was alive, he didn't have the Bible as we know it. The Bible, of course, it's still being written. It's being lived out as, as, as Saul is alive. Now, Saul would have had what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but that's about it. That's all he would have had. So in Saul's day, when a prophet speaks, the prophet was speaking the words of God, and because he was speaking the words of God, you obeyed him. Saul, however, chose not to obey the prophet. And because he wasn't obeying the prophet, he was falling short of what God had required him to do. He was sinning by not obeying the prophet. Just like you and I, when, when we don't do what God tells us to do in His Word, we're, we're sinning. We're falling short of God's standard. Because God has revealed His standard to us in His Word. In Saul's day, God would have revealed His standard through the prophet. And Samuel said, or excuse me, Saul said, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. Which brings us to our next point. Point number three. It's a question of repentance. Samuel shows up there and Saul goes out to greet him. But when Saul greets Samuel, Samuel immediately confronts him about what he's done. He says to him, what have you done? Now, beloved, please, please understand this. Samuel's not asking Saul to give him a play-by-play of what's happened. Samuel already knows what he's done. He can smell the burnt offering. He can see the carcass of the animal. Samuel already knows what he's done. And so when he asks, what have you done? He's, he's more saying like this, what have you done? You know, it's that tone of voice. It's kind of like if you walk into your kitchen and your kitchen looks like it's, you know, something exploded in there and there on your floor sits your precious four-year-old uh, daughter and she's spread flour from cover to, you know, from corner to cover uh, of your kitchen and there's eggshells and other ingredients all over the place. And she's sitting there on the floor with a mixing bowl and, her, and a smile on her face and she's looking at you kind of like, yeah, I, I don't know whether I'm in trouble or not, but yeah, I'm happy right now. And she's giving, giving you that look. And you ask your four-year-old, what have you done? You, you already know what she's done. She's made a mess of the kitchen, right? What you're really asking her is, why? Why did you do that? And so she smiles at you and gives, you know, flashes those uh, eyes at you and she says, I, I'm making you a cake, right? And all is forgiven at that moment. But what you're asking her is, why? Why did you do that? That's what Saul is doing. The same sense, or excuse me, Samuel's doing. Samuel is asking Saul, why did you go ahead with the burnt offering before I? Why did you do it, Saul? That's what he's really asking. And because Saul was wrong to have made that offering. He was disobeying Samuel. And Samuel is giving Saul a chance to show repentance. He's giving... He's giving Saul a chance to say, you know, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have. But what does Saul do? Does Saul Saul show even the slightest measure of repentance? He doesn't, does he? He starts making excuses. Three of them, in fact. Look with me at the text. This is verse 11. First excuse. I saw the people were scattering from me. Again, Saul, he started with a number that vastly outnumbered the Philistines. 
And his, his army is, or, uh, he started with, a, with an army that was already vastly outnumbered, is what I'm trying to say. And his small army has already been bleeding numbers day by day. Saul is in a moment of crisis. He's in full panic mode. He doesn't want to lose even one more member of his army. So he makes an excuse. The people were leaving. Second excuse. You didn't come within the days appointed. Here's the translation of that, by the way. Saul is saying, it isn't my fault. Sam, it's your fault, Sam. If you would have come when you said you were coming, none of this would be happening. And, and friends, we do that all the time, don't we? It's blame shifting. It's, it's, it's old as the garden. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. When, when, when Adam is confronted about his sin, what does he do? He tells, well, it's not my fault. It's her fault. It's that woman. And by the way, God, you're the one who gave that woman to me. And so in Adam's mind, he's blaming God for even giving him the woman that caused him to sin. Beloved, we do the same thing all the time. We blame shift. That's what Saul's doing. He's blame shifting. Third excuse, the Philistines had mustard at Michmash. Doesn't mean they're making a deli sandwich there by mustard, okay? Mustard means they're getting ready to attack. Saul felt he had to do something. He couldn't just do nothing. He has to do something. He's justifying his sin. Look there at the end of verse 12. Saul says, So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Oh, oh, I didn't, I really didn't want to do it, God. I didn't want to do it. I forced myself to sin against you. Beloved, it is unwise. It is unwise to ever try to justify our sin. Oh, listen, we're all going to sin. We're going to fall short of God's standard from our life from time to time. It's just, it's going to happen. But when we do that, the answer is not to justify our sin. The answer is to turn from our sin in repentance. The answer to our sin is to acknowledge that we've fallen short of God's glory. We've fallen short of God's standard. The answer is to turn from our sin and turn to God. Saul didn't do that. It takes us to our next point, point number four. The judgment of God. After Saul tries to justify his sin, Samuel responds to him with some rather strong words. I want you to see these. I'm going to read them again. Look at verses 13 and 14. It's what Samuel says. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now those are devastating words. Devastating words. Here's my paraphrase. Samuel saying to Saul, you're a fool. You're, you're a fool. You, you haven't kept the command of the Lord. If you would have simply obeyed God, you would have had your kingdom forever, but you couldn't even do that. And so now the kingdom has been torn from you and the kingdom is going to be given to a man after God's own heart. Beloved, those are not the words you want to hear when you're the king. Those are not the words that Saul wanted to hear. But Saul had proven himself to be an unrepentant leader. A man after God's own heart, on the other hand, should be characterized by repentance. 
A man after God's own heart is, is not a perfect man. No one is perfect. But a man after God's own heart will be a repentant man. A repentant leader. You've heard me say this before, but it's worth repeating again and again. Every member of this church, all of us, we, all of us, we are sinners. Joining a church, joining this church, joining any church for that matter, it doesn't transfer you out of the category of being a sinner. You're still a sinner. So even if you're, you say, I'm a Christian, I'm not a sinner. Yes, you are a sinner. But Christians ought to be a special type of sinner. As Christians, we are called to be repentant sinners. Beloved, you know, it's not so much our sin that gets us into trouble. Although sin will get you into trouble. But it's especially our unrepentant sin that gets us into trouble. It's our unrepentant sin. That gets, and that's where Saul is. He is an unrepentant sinner. Now let's contrast that with the man who's ultimately going to follow Saul as king. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know, you know his name is David. He's the, he's the one who's described after, as a man after God's own heart. But if you know anything about David's life, you, you know he was, he was far from perfect. Chief among his sins were adultery and murder. I mean, those are two of the Ten Commandments, right? Pretty significant sins. But think about this with me. When Saul sinned and was confronted by the prophet, Saul started excuse-making. When David sinned, he slept with Bathsheba and then compounded his sin, made it, made it even worse by having her husband killed, by you know, essentially trying to cover up his sin. When David was confronted by the prophet of God, in his case it was Nathan the prophet, when David was confronted by that prophet about his sin, David didn't start excuse making. In fact, if you read the text in 2 Samuel, David doesn't offer a single excuse, not one excuse. David repented on the spot for his sin. Beloved, that's why he's a man after God's own heart. Not because he's perfect. That's why he's different than Saul. That's why his throne is established forever and ever. Now to our final point. Point number five. Point number five is when compromise gives way to pragmatism. I'm going to do a lot of summarizing here. And this is um, verses, the latter half of verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Saul had compromised on the holiness of God. He had disregarded what the prophet had told him to do, and he had turned to pragmatism. You see, Saul, Saul shouldn't have uh, compromised when it came to God's Word, but he did. It's, instead of holding God's Word as sacred, Saul thought, you know, this isn't working in my particular situation. I, I know what Samuel told me, but it's not working right now. So I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do what I want to do instead of what I've been told to do. He thought he was being reasonable. He thought he was being logical. In reality, he's simply being pragmatic. Now, pragmatism isn't a sin per se, but that's when we compromise for the sake of pragmatism, then it is a sin. But where did that compromise leave Saul? That's what I want us to see in these lines. It left him, number one, without a kingdom. That's verse 14. Left him without a kingdom. It left him with only 600 fighting men. That's verse 15. That 600, by the way, represents an 80% reduction from where he started. So listen, if you lose 80% of your fighting force, things aren't going well for you. It left him with the Philistines sending out raiders throughout all the land. That's verses 17 and 18. And it left him 
and all Israel without spears or swords. That's verses 19 and following. The, the, the Israelites were having to go out and get their farm utensils sharpened for war. The only people that had swords and spears were Saul and Jonathan. Saul's compromise of the Word of God led him to compromise his leadership among the people. Now I want us to fast forward a thousand years after Saul to another king. A, a king who's facing a crisis of his own. A king who's faced with a decision about whether he might Compromise or not. This king's name is Jesus. You might be familiar with the story. He's there the evening before he's to be crucified and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying. He knows what's coming. He knows good and well what's coming. He's praying. He could have given in to fear. He could have given in to the pain that he knew was coming. He could have ignored his father. He could have ignored God's word. You know, and perhaps if you think about it, maybe maybe he could have even justified that move by arguing and say, Hey, you know, I'm doing a good thing right now. I'm I'm helping lots of people, I'm healing people, I'm giving them hope. You know, maybe you know, he could have argued, let me just put the cross off right now. I'm not going to give up on it entirely. Let me, just, let me just postpone it for another time. That's not what he did, praise God. He didn't compromise. In that prayer, he says to his father, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, we have a decision to make as well. In just a moment, I'm going to be leaving this room and going to the next room and John Hall is going to give you some instructions about whether you follow there or you stay here. Um, I'm getting ready to go head to the other side of the campus to baptize two people who are declaring before us all that they are following Jesus. Now to be clear, they're not saying that they're perfect. In fact, they, like the rest of us, are far from perfect. But they, through their baptism... They're declaring that by God, with God's help, they don't intend to compromise when it comes to what God has called them to do. They want to follow Jesus. And so I'll close with this question. How about you? Are you willing to follow Jesus no matter what the consequences might bring? Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, thank You so much for this day. Thank You for Your Word. Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that even now, that You would be at work in and among the people here at PHBC. That Your Spirit would convict of sin where, where necessary. That Your Spirit would enliven and give new life to those who need it today. Father, thank You for Brian and Lori and their willingness to proclaim faith in You through baptism. Use this time to your honor and your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.